Welcome to another podcast of Risen.Church. Glad you joined us. And today I'm really excited about this because we're going to begin a two-part series here about relationships. And it basically, uh, things that I have shared and doing engaged in premarital counseling, it is for husband and wife relationship. But I believe it extends further than just husband and wife. I think it can be in all the friendships that we have here on earth, how to have a strong relationship. But even exceeding that, I think it's better to even understand this is this is kind of relationship these are the things that are important for us to know God and to be able to experience God in our life but today I want to talk to you about love that's kind of the age-old question is what is love and it's always fun to sit with engaged couples that are in the blissful time of their life of looking to get married and ask them to define love and a lot of times they just kind of go blank when they're put on the spot but you know the world kind of teaches us its version of love and of course one of the things that you hear the world say and I'm going to show my age with some of these things that uh, I've heard through my life of growing up they say that love is a many splendored thing And while that's a very true definition of love, that's like saying there's a few hundred barrels of water in the ocean. I mean, it really doesn't clarify a whole lot. It's just an overarching statement. So there's a lot more to love than just being a many splendored thing. And then there was another song that when I was a young child that was really popular, and it says, love makes the world go round. Well, no, it doesn't. I mean, love can make you so dizzy spinning around, but it it's not what makes the world go around. Gravity is what makes the world go around. So that fails in its attempt to try to define love for us. But I think in our current day, what we're experiencing, the world teaches us and equates love with sex. I mean, you stop and think about everything, the way we say things. We say things and before long, we begin to believe them. And, uh, you know, you stop and think about this in this day and time, if you're parents of young children and and you have a son and he's 13 years old and you're wanting to go out as a family and go to a movie you pick a pg-13 movie and you go in there and it's one of these hits that everybody's done in the places the theater's just packed and you get in there and all of a sudden you're embarrassed because two people are getting undressed and getting into bed together and your 13 year old son who has not yet experienced the kind of life that you know and and the things about that that thinks that's cool looks at you and says oh dad what are they doing you know well then everybody quits watching the movie and they start watching you because you're more interesting than even the movie because they're wanting to see how you're going to respond to your son who's asking what they're doing and you say shh we'll talk about this when we get home that's not going to satisfy a young boy's uh, question about that and he keeps on and finally as a dad we'll turn around and go junior just they're making love well really they're 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 not making love they're having sex and if we would say exactly what is happening then we wouldn't be confusing the children with the kind of things of definitions that we're talking about when we teach our son that two people having sex are making love then that's what forms in their mind well if I want to make love then I'll find somebody I like I'll go get undressed and get in bed with them and then I'm making love we confuse the issue between what is making love and having sex and if we were you know really good parents we would really be honest with our 13 year old son and say you know what those two people are are having sex and you know you if if it was a married couple you know you could say and that because they're married they can do that but unfortunately in most of our movies the excitement is not that married people are having sex but it's unmarried people or 
adulterous relationships that are going on, but that would be a really good teachable moment for a father to teach a son and say, no, you know what they're doing, son? They're having sex. And the Bible says that that's wrong. They shouldn't be doing that. They're going against God's word and God's plan and God's design. But the world has just inundated us with the fact that when we think of love, we think of intimacy, and we think of intimacy, we think of sex. And that's all that basically the world thinks of about love in this day and time. So I want to give you two definitions of love today. And I'm going to give you a theological definition of love. And people, when I say that to them, when I'm face-to-face with them, you know, it just like scares them to death. They go, theology. Oh, I don't understand theology. There's a lot of deep, hard words in theology like dispensationalism and all these different things that are going on. And I'm like, no, really, don't don't panic on me here. I said, I'm going to tell you this theological definition of love, and there's not going to be a word you don't understand. You're going to be able to follow it all the way through. And the other thing is you don't have to remember the theological definition of love. The second definition is the definition I want you to remember, and that's the practical definition of love. And the reason why I want you to remember the practical definition of love is because if you practice it, then love is always going to be present in your home and in your life with the relationships that are meaningful and important to you. But you have to know the theological definition of love before the practical definition of love becomes pertinent in our life and applicable. So here we go. The theological definition of love, the first word is unconditional. It means no if ands or buts. It's not saying, I love you if. I love you when. I will love you if you do this. It is unconditional. And it's a commitment. It's a decision that you make that you say you're going to live with for the rest of your life. So the theological definition of love begins with an unconditional commitment. Unfortunately, that's not the end of the definition. It goes on a little bit further, and this is where it gets a little bit tougher. It's an unconditional commitment uh, to someone imperfect. And that's where it gets difficult. Because as children, we grow up and little girls are playing with their Barbie and Ken dolls and they are excited about, you know, playing house and they can't wait till they grow up and get married. And little girl asked her mom, said, Mom, when will I know that I've met the right person to get married to? And the mother's like, well, you'll just know, you know. And so they learn all the stories and the fairy tales and everything. And so the little girl is waiting for her Prince Charming, her knight in shining arbor to come along and riding his white stallion and to sweep her off her feet and to ride off into the sunset to live happily ever after. Well, it doesn't even happen in fairy tales and it certainly doesn't happen in real life situations, but yet that's the expectation that a young girl's growing up waiting to find Mr. Right. Now for a young boy, and again, this is going to date me when I was a teenager and young man. They're waiting for their tin. There was that movie that came out in the 80s about the tin, and that was the symbol of the perfect female. And this man sat out on a mission to find the most perfect woman he could find, and when he did, he was going to marry that woman. And so most men are waiting for that tin to come along. Unfortunately, there are no absolute tins out there because there's no one perfect on this earth, not male or female. There's not one that is perfect. So when we set our expectations and our anticipations for that to happen and we finally meet somebody and we decide to get married because we go into this dating process and it's interesting that, you know, as you meet somebody and you go on that first date, both the man and the woman are doing everything to put their best foot forward. You know, the the lady has to find the right clothes and have the right hairdo and have everything, the right kind of makeup. Everything has to be perfect for that date. The guy, you know, he's gone and he's washed his pickup and he's 
put on his best pair of blue jeans and make sure they're starched and everything and he's doing everything in the press and so you go on his first day and you say wow this was great let's do this again and you do it again and you keep putting your best foot forward you know and for all this dating relationship you're always doing the best to impress the other person you know you hide all the pimples and the warts and the bad breath and all that kind of stuff that comes along with us as human beings and so you've always put the best foot forward and everybody goes this is great why don't we get married and what do you do during the engagement time you're trying to plan that perfect wedding you got to have the right date with the right place with the right people with the right music with the right colors with the light right flower everything's got to be perfect and what's interesting is people spend you know months planning this wedding they spend hundreds and not thousands of dollars to get married and then when the wedding ceremony is over the only thing they remember are the things that gone wrong because we don't live in a perfect environment but if you have this expectation that you're going to meet that perfect person when something happens and the carpet gets pulled out from under and you realize that this person you committed to is not perfect, then you can allow the enemy to come and say, well, I might be happier with somebody else or it might be easier with somebody else. But again, the theological definition of love is an unconditional commitment to somebody imperfect. Now, I don't think I lost you with deep theological terms there or anything. I think those are words that everybody understands. But like I said, you do not have to remember that definition but you have to know that to make the practical definition of love stand out to make a difference in your life and here's the practical definition of love the practical definition of love is always now you know if you get onto computer programs and you're typing a paper and you've typed the word always or never it'll have that little disclaimer come up are you sure you want to say that because you should never say always or never but in the practical definition of love it fits it's always wanting the best now in america we're great at wanting the best in america if you aren't number one you're a nobody and we strive and there's nothing wrong to strive for excellence and it's nothing wrong to strive to be the best you can at whatever you're trying to do but if you make this uh, your overarching goal in life, you're going to be disappointed because, again, we don't live in this perfect world. But if you're always wanting the best, America does that. You know, like in the NFL, you know, you got 32 teams. And at the end of the year, two teams go to the Super Bowl. And when it's over and done, there's one team that wins the Super Bowl, and they're called world champions. I often wondered why they're called world champions because they beat nobody outside the United States. I would think national champions would be just as good for the NFL as it is for the NCAA, but they're called world champions. And the other team, they're called losers. And for a whole year, they live with the stigma of having gone to the Super Bowl but lost. And I mean, and all the talking heads on ESPN and all the sports channels are always saying, what does this team need to do to get better? to go back to the Super Bowl and win it. It's almost like they, they didn't do good enough to win it and like their, their whole franchise is in shambles because they lost the Super Bowl. And what's interesting is usually at three months after the game, you ask who won the Super Bowl, nobody can even remember who won the Super Bowl and surely can't remember who lost the Super Bowl. And we put all the stock and emphasis on things that really don't matter. But the practical definition of love is always wanting the best, but here's the kicker. It's wanting the best for the other person. And if you remember from the theological definition of love, that other person is the one that's imperfect. And so when you 
say that you are in love. You are saying that I'm going to live my life in a way to always strive for the other person to have the very best. Now, I often like to stop right here, too, and talk, think about the opposite. What is the opposite of always wanting the best for the other person? Now, in our depravity, our sin, sinful state, we're not so diabolical that we would turn that around and say, I always want the worst for the other person. The opposite of always wanting the best for the other person is always wanting the best for myself. And uh, as a pastor and in the ministry for over 30 years, I've uh, dealt not only with uh, engaged couples, but also married couples that were going through really serious trials in their marriage. And I would literally be in the room in my office with a couple that didn't even want to be in the same room with one another, let alone talk to one another, or even think about trying to make this relationship work again. And I will tell you this, that no matter how desperate the situation was, with every couple I've ever met with, love has always been present in their home. The question is, what kind of love is present in their home? Is it the kind of love that always wants the best for the other person, which literally is sacrifice? If you live this practical definition of love, you're saying, I've, I've matured enough that I'm going to lay down my life so that this person that I love will always have the best. Or is your love being demonstrated by always wanting the best for myself? And usually with those couples that are at odds with one another and can't even hardly stand to look at one another, that's the issue. Their love that's being demonstrated is always wanting the best for themselves. And if you ask them what's wrong with the, what's going wrong in the uh, marriage, in the relationship, they'll usually say, well, if he would do this, then everything would be great. And she's saying, well, if he'd do this, then I'd do that. And it's just like a tennis match going back and forth and the ball's getting hit over the net, you know, at 150 mile an hour because they are blaming the other person. And most all that's going on because the love that they're demonstrating in their home is not sacrifice to want the best for the other person, but it's selfishness wanting to get the very best for themselves. So if we understand the practical definition of love and we live our life to the people who are important around us to give ourselves in such a way that their life is better, then we become Christ-like. We become like what Jesus Christ was when he walked this earth. And as he walked this earth, he blessed everybody that came around him because he was literally wanting the best uh, for them. He, that's why he came to earth was to be able to show God's love. So you, you really got to, you can always remember love, I think, very simply that love is either sacrifice or it's selfishness. And if you remember that, when you get into a conflict with whether it's your spouse or your parents or a friend or even with God, you can just ask yourself, am I being selfish right now or am I willing to sacrifice my rights, my privileges, my desires for the betterment of the other person? Now, I learned a lot of this uh, definition of love uh, when I started premarital counseling from H. Norman Wright, who wrote the book, Premarital Counseling, and I was very grateful for him giving those definitions for me to be able to hold on to. But through the years of sitting with uh, about 250 couples in premarital counseling, there were lots of different ways that all went, and I learned a lot just from the foundation of those things. And I had been doing premarital counseling for well over two years, and my wife and I had been married for 18 years, 
when all of a sudden the situation in our relationship uh, just hit me like a wet mop in the face, and I literally had to do some soul-searching. You see, my wife, we met while we were in high school, and we got married before we graduated high school. Uh, I'd been 18 for three days when we went to the altar and got married. And so we had about six or seven more weeks of high school left. Uh, and then we got to graduate side by side because we had the same last name. That's why we tell everybody we got married in high school. But it wasn't. The reason why we got married is in her life, she'd had a very rough childhood. Um, her, both of her parents were alcoholics, and her father, when she was 11 years old, committed suicide. She had two sisters that were 17 and 15 years older than her, so she was like an only child, even though she was the baby in the family. And then as the things worked out, her mother had to be put into a care center, and so her older sister took uh, her in and raised her with her two daughters that she had had. And then she had married a man who had three daughters by his first wife who had died. So she was always felt like she was a fifth wheel. She never had a place that was her own. And when she met uh, me and I introduced her to my mom and dad, my mom and dad had never been around a girl before because I was one of three boys and they fell in love with her. Well, she fell in love with them and she adopted them in her mind as surrogate parents that she never had. And part of that reason we got married so early was because she felt like now that she found us, not just me, but my mom and dad, that she finally had a place that was her own. And I did, in a lot of ways, I felt like her uh, Prince Charming. I felt like her knight in shining armor that I came along and rescued her and we were able to start home. And we were so excited on that day of April the 7th of 1972 when we got married. She threw her arms around my shoulders and hugged me and she, you know, let me know that she was excited to be my wife. But it didn't take long that it seemed like that her arms slipped from around my shoulders up to around my neck and she was squeezing the life out of me because she was so afraid she was going to lose this place that was finally hers and now I have to admit it wasn't all her fault some of the things that I was doing when we were first married didn't give her a lot of security but she had been lived all of her 18 years in insecurity about having to care for herself where was she going to live who was she going to live with and when we got married she had that but then I was doing some of the same things that caused that insecurity uh, to jump up in her life but then we got back into church eight years after we got married and then Seven years after that, I left the oil field that I'd worked in and went into ministry and was doing all these things, and things were going good. And uh, we had a big singles conference that was at First Baptist Moore in April of 1990. And our guest speaker of it was Tom Lester. Now, that name probably means nothing to you, but if you're my age, you remember the old TV show Green Acres. And uh, Tom Lester was Ebb on Green Acres, and he was a single man. He was a good Christian single man, and literally he was an evangelist and preacher from the time he left when the show ended of Green Acres, and I found out about him, so I invited him to come to Moore, and we did a big singles banquet, and the next day um, he gave his uh, testimony in both of our worship services, and the year before he got the part on Green Acres, he lived down here in Purcell, and he was a, a school teacher. 
in Purcell, Oklahoma. So he still had lots of friends. And so he went to First Baptist Purcell that night to preach and to see all of his friends down there. So when we got through the Sunday morning service, uh, Tom Lester and uh, my wife and I and our two daughters and the pastor and his wife and his two daughters, we all went to a restaurant together and we ate. And while we were there, a lady came up behind me and said, are you Mike Booth? And I turned around and looked at her and said, uh, yeah, not being able to recognize her. And she could tell by the expression on my face, I didn't have a clue who she, who she was. I said, you don't remember me, do you? And I said, no. And she said, well, I'm Kathy Burleson. And I went, Kathy Burleson? I was like, hmm. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, yeah, Portland Avenue Baptist Church, 7th, 8th grade, years. We were in the youth group together. And she went, yeah. And I said, what do you do? Obviously, you're working here at, at the restaurant. And she said, yeah. She said, I'm assistant manager. She said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm a singles minister at First Baptist Church Moore. And I introduced our pastor and his family. I introduced Tom Lester. And I said, well, how's your life going? She said, well, I'm divorced. I was like, oh, well, you ought to come join our singles group. And I thought, boy, this is really good because I'm getting some, you know, stroke here with my pastor thinking that, look here, he's out at lunch and he's still, you know, engaging people to come to church and everything. So I thought that was really good. And so while we got our salads, we made our way back and then she brought her card over there. And then Tom Lester was an absolutely great man. I mean, he was fabulous the way he could tell stories. And even in that restaurant, people were recognizing him and their children were coming and he was they were sitting on the floor and he was telling stories to him. We stayed in that restaurant for over two hours. And then we went back to our office and he was making some phone calls they needed to make before he left for Purcell. And I was tired because it had been a long weekend and it was getting close to the evening services all beginning. And I knew once that all kicked off about 4.30 that I wouldn't get home from church till about 8.30 that night. So I thought, I'll give Freddie a call real quick. And so I called her and I said, how's it going? She said, good. And I knew right away that that good meant things weren't right, just the way she said it. And it wasn't the word, it was the tone that was behind it. I said, what's wrong? Did I do something wrong? She said, no, you didn't do anything wrong. I said, somebody at church do something? No, nobody at church did anything. I said, well, what's going on? She said, we'll talk about it tonight when we get home. I said, no, I'm not waiting until 8.30 tonight. Tell me what is wrong. And she said, Kathy. I said, Kathy? Who's Kathy? And then it hit me, oh, Kathy at the restaurant. And then all of a sudden, I felt like what she was saying to me is like, she didn't like that Kathy knew me and that that looked bad and all this insecurity was coming up. And I was like, you're right. We will talk about this when we get home. And I just hung up on her. And as I hung up the phone, I went over, I sat on uh, the couch that was in that little area of our office. And I'm just fuming, thinking, oh, Freddie, if you just get over these insecurities, our life would be easier. We wouldn't have all these problems. And I'm just sitting there thinking about all this. And it's like God, not in an audible voice, but in my spirit, starts speaking to me. And he said, Mike, what do you teach those engaged couples about the practical definition of love? And I remember arguing with God. I said, come on, God. Don't be preaching to me what I teach to other people. I don't need this. Besides, we're not engaged. We've been married for 18 years. We ought to be beyond this. We ought to be to the point where she knows that we have a secure home and doesn't have to worry about it. And it's like, she never trusts me, you know, and I'm going on and on in my mind. And he literally stopped me and said, now, what did she say? I said, she didn't like what Kathy did. Oh, she didn't like what Kathy did. She didn't say anything about what you did, did she? I went, no, sir. I was like, sat back. I was like, hmm, I probably shouldn't have hung up on her. I'm like, God, 
thank you. You're correcting me. I was like, this is going to be good. I'll get home tonight after church, and I'll apologize to her, and I'll show her what good Christians do. <laughs> I'll just confess where I was wrong, you know, and everything will be right. And, boy, God didn't let me go, and he just kept working on me on this one issue. Love is always wanting the best for the other person. Now, what's interesting is the way God weaves the whole tapestry of our life together. I was going through a seminary course that I was going to take a one-week course in, in May, and this was at the end of April, and it was intervention with drug and alcohol abusers and their families. And in that study, I started learning about the things that Freddie had grown up in and the way that made her an adult child of alcoholics. And I realized all the things that were going on, and I began to realize all the things that I had done, uh, not only when I was in the oil field, but even the pressure that I was putting on her to just grow up and get over the insecure past that she had and just live in the present that I was putting undue pressure on her and keeping her from being able to move forward and to grow past what had happened to her. And I was literally strangling her more than she was strangling me. And that night when we got home, we asked our two daughters to answer the doorbell and let anybody that came, because we used to have singles come over on Sunday night after church all the time. They'd stay about to midnight. And we told them they could go in and they could watch whatever TV they wanted. They could get anything out of the refrigerator. Just don't come back there. And for like three and a half hours, Freddie and I just sat back in our room and talked and really had a great conversation about what was going on. And it was like this one thing God really took in my um, spirit to understand what I was doing. I was loving myself more than I was loving Freddie. And I was wanting Freddie to change so that my life would become easier. If she wouldn't have the insecurity, then I wouldn't have to worry about her questioning me on all this. And I kept putting pressure on her to change so my life would be easier. I was showing the demonstration of love, of being selfishness, wanting Freddie to be what I thought I needed. But when my eyes were opened to this, I began to realize I just need to accept what this reality is. We can't change the past, but we can acknowledge it for what it was, and then we can set a vision for the future, living for the day, to be able to do what God wants us to do. And from that point forward, that night of April the 23rd of 1990, I accepted all the insecurity that Freddie had, and I never put pressure on her to change anymore. And as soon as I did that, God taught me two things. This insecurity that Freddie grew up with that I was wanting her to change, God had, was going to use in her life for my protection. For the protection not only of my marriage so that our marriage would stay faithful to one another, but God was going to use her to protect me and my ministry. And there are a lot of times when we as men, we don't understand the kind of activity that women are doing to us. But Freddie, she knows that because she is female. And Freddie can look at me and say, I don't like the way that woman talks to you. I was like, really? I don't see that, but you know what? If you see it, I'm going to receive that, and I'm going to be very cautious, and I'll keep my distance with that person. And so since the day that I accepted Freddie's insecurities and quit trying to change her, and I realized that God was going to use that for a blessing for the rest of our lives, Satan has never, ever been able to cause any kind of conflict in our relationship from that day forward. But it's when love you know, the Bible tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. When we begin to practice the true biblical definition of love, of always wanting the best for the other person, then we can receive what God has for us. And I want you to understand, this isn't just about what engaged couples and what married couples 
do. This even goes to the point of who God is toward us. And of course, the Apostle John is called the beloved disciple, the beloved apostle. And when you read the things that John wrote in the Bible, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and even the book of Revelation, you find more about the concept and the theology of love than you do probably almost anywhere else in the Bible. Even in the Gospel of John, we know the greatest verse that people usually quote, for God so loved the world. And it says that God so loved the world that he gave. He didn't take anything from this world. God gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should have everlasting life. Everybody knows that verse. But then also Jesus taught among his disciples in John chapter 13. He said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Not by you go to the same church or the things you do, but by that you have love one for another. And then, of course, Jesus, as he was getting ready to go to the cross to become the sacrifice for all of our sins, Jesus taught in John chapter 15, greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. The biblical definition of love not only applies to what we do as a husband and wife, not only applies to the way we should be treating our family members and our friends, but it goes all the way to how we should respond to God's love that he bestowed upon us because he loved us when we were enemies and separated from him. And he did that so that he could reconcile us back to himself. So I hope and pray that what you will take from this podcast is simply remembering that love always wants the best for the other person and allow God to take that little definition and to use it in your life to put you on the road and on the path to having strong and enduring relationships with all the people that you know. I want to thank you for taking time to listen to this podcast. Uh, I want to also let you know that the next podcast will be the second part of this. It's going to be talking about another pillar of the foundation that we have to have in having strong relationships. And if this uh, podcast meant anything to you, would you please take time to rate and review it? And then if you have any questions about it or any comments that you would like to share with me, you can do that by emailing me at mike at risen.church. And I would love to hear from you.